I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have truly one of my favorite actors in the world, someone who's really changed my life, that I had the pleasure of meeting so many years ago, and it was great to reunite, Jason Isaacs. You know him from The OA, Harry Potter, The Patriot, Armageddon, and far too many other projects to mention. We're here to talk about his new film, Skyfire. He's got an awesome film called Mass at Sundance, and it's such a wonderful interview. Because it was such a wonderful time, we went for about two and a half hours. So today, here's the final part, part two with Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, welcome back, part two. I changed for you. What do you think? Yeah, you look good. How do it's, I look? It's the first time I've, first time I've, I've, <laughs> first time I've worn two different clothes in consecutive days in uh, about a year. Yeah, I've been wearing the same thing. Just for you, Ryan. Yeah, thank you, Jason. I, I had an audition, but I also thought I would stay, you know, in character and in suit for you. <laughs> How's your uh, how's How everything you going? You have a good uh, weekend. It's fucking insane. The world is insane. Everything's yeah. nuts. What is a weekend? I remember weekends. What were they? Uh, I'm making yeah. preparations. I'm I have to get on a plane and go to Canada and uh, shoot a pilot uh, that I agreed to do. I agreed to whatever. I was meant to do this time last year. Uh, they're lovely people. It's a lovely show, but uh, I can't pretend not to be anxious about getting on a plane and going to a new environment where yeah, where <laughs> COVID's going through the roof like everywhere else. Yeah. And, um, and it's a weird inversion of the normal pyramid of power on a film set, which is at some point they go rolling cameras and, and they nod and all the actors take their masks off and you feel very, it feels like doing a naked scene. It feels extremely vulnerable. Yeah, my uh, friends. You take your masks off and start acting. My friends doing Mission Impossible right now and they're doing the same thing on that set and it's just crazy, you know. I just had an audition where I had, they asked me to do it with the mask on. Wow. Yeah. That's unusual. Yeah, You're yeah. playing a... Serial killer. What you- well, it was like a- <laughs> I'm playing a surgeon in this. <laughs> at least some of the scenes will have a mask on. So that's yeah, cool. touche. That's great. Yeah, that's a very uh, astute for the times. But I played the uh, juror, and I guess they're just going with the because it's like a procedural drama right. that they're going to incorporate COVID into it. I assume. 
Sure. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, I don't know that we've changed our script. Our script was written pre-COVID. Uh, it's a curious thing, actually. I've been around, obviously, in this last year, a bunch of script discussions with people about things that are or aren't happening or developing and, uh, and where to set your story. Yeah. You set it in a post-COVID world, no one references it. Do you set it in a world where people are still wearing masks and distancing? Does, do you want to set it, period, before that ever happened? And is that going to look weird on screen? It's a constant discussion now amongst people telling stories. Yeah. What do you think is the right answer? If, what, or is there not one? Depends on the story. It yeah. Depends on the story. It depends what you're telling, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I watch things now. I'm watching a movie and, you know, it's just a completely mundane scene of a bunch of people in a coffee shop and you go, do you remember when? It yeah. feels like another era. It feels like another planet. I'm re-watching um, House of Cards now and like just people are so close because of everything crazy going on in America. And I'm like, wow, I forget what it's like to, to be that intimate with someone in just a social environment, you know? Sure. It's crazy. So when you're making a contemporary story, what is contemporary? You know, you're filming it now. It won't be out for a year. Um, to you, will we still be wearing masks and distancing? Well, you know, will this thing be under control? Will it be history? Will we all be living in denial? Uh, it's hard. And what are the implications? You know, how, how different will society be yeah. economically? Well, what's going on? There'll be obviously a lot more unemployment and things, you know, there'll be seismic changes in uh, the way we live uh, or possibly uh, how, you know, how many people work where, where money is. And, and so what picture do you paint of uh, us in a year's time? It's tricky. Luckily, I don't have to come up with the answers. I just make suggestions to writers and they have to come up with the answers. But it's a, but it's a live debate all the time in, in the storytelling world. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And, and you got a lot of projects I see in development. Are they all kind of up in the air about which direction they're going? Uh, well, some of them are period. Actually, two of the things that I'm hoping to do uh, hoping you know who knows if they'll happen who knows what, what will happen yeah uh, i think they're financed but even when something is financed doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do it um our period so yeah. one of them is a flan o'brien short story set in a kind of timeless uh, version of dublin and the other is about the 80s in britain it's a uh, the sean Ryder and the happy monday story oh wow um, so that's you know but of course you don't you want to be in a vaccine environment for that because there's big crowds there's a lot of crowd scenes yeah I, 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 unless I, you can do Tyler Perry and take everybody involved in the production away somewhere for two weeks to completely isolate and then keep them there for the duration of the shoot, you want to be in a safe environment. Yeah, you know, because I know most New York productions are doing away with extras and, and that's crazy to even think that there's a possibility of that within a year just because of the, the world we've been living in. But talk to me, you know. Well, I'll tell you I, what's crazy. I'll tell you what's, what's odd, I find odd, and I'm thankful for, is that on the list of essential businesses that are allowed to keep going in every country are healthcare, obviously, and food distribution, sewage, power, you know, electricity, things like that, and film and television production. Yeah. Which I don't know how we got on that list, but filming is continuing in every country. Uh, it's not just because people need entertaining, because obviously there's massive archives. I guess it's because we had these supposedly strict protocols on sets that are meant to des design to stop people getting infected. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how well they're working. Yeah, I don't either. And, and we're going to find out, you know, I guess, you know, we've heard so many different ones about having to shut down, pick back yeah, up, having to shut down now. again. But, you know, talk to me. You're in the UK right now, right? I'm in London where things have gone batshit. Yeah, yeah. So how, how are you uh, holding up, man? Because you guys are back on third lockdown, well, right? Is it? Third? Yeah, we're on full lockdown, supposedly. But look, how am I holding up? It's a binary thing. You've got it or you haven't. I haven't, I hope. I'm in my house with my wife and kids where, you know, we're unbelievably lucky in that we can stay in our house and I don't have to go out to work and uh, we have food in the fridge, we have heating. So, you know, uh, any complaints I had to be seen 
in that perspective that there's so many people in so many worse situations, but it's fucking awful. You know, I've got yeah. an 18-year-old kid who went to college for a semester or a term, as oh. we call them, and, and now doesn't know when, if she's going back. And I've got a 15-year-old who was ready to do exams. She's been working for for years. They just got canceled and trying to keep them sane when yeah. the future is, you know, the future is this amorphous blob. Yeah. Um, it's tough. Uh, it is really but, tough. Yeah. Know, but well, it's, it's all, it's all a question of perspective. Obviously, you know, we're incredibly privileged because a lot of people don't have a choice. They've got to get out there and they've got to go to work, put themselves at risk. And yeah. we have a garden and we have a park we live near. There are people on the 15th floor of tower blocks that, you know, have, uh, you know, then they, they don't have a computer. My kid's doing school online. Well, yeah. I have computers and we have broadband. So a lot of people don't have that stuff either. Yeah, totally. So, uh, it's a question of trying to find a way to remind yourself always uh, how to stay grateful and to realize I, I, what I, you've got instead of what you're missing. I think that's imperative in life, and I think it's the only way to stay sane is is gratitude. You know, it's, uh, I'm sober, and that's something we always talk about in the sober yeah. circles. You know, and it, it really is. It's imperative to be grateful. To I had an audition today. You know, I've you you today, and those things I'm I'm grateful for. So sure. I got to see your film. You know, Doctor Bird's Advice for Sad Poets. Loved it. Uh, let's talk into that one, and then you know we'll okay. dig in back to some of the other ones that we didn't. Get Did you see Mass yet? They wouldn't let me see it. They're saving uh, it for Sundance. I know. Yeah. Okay, I, we I really wanted to see anyway, it. <laughs> it's a yeah. weird thing for someone who's really not been working for quite a long time to have three things out at the same time. So Skyfire, Dr. Birds, and Mass coming out in Sundance. Uh, it makes it look like I'm very, very busy when, in fact, I've been doing washing up uh, <laughs> well, as far back as my memory goes. But, it, you know, I'm happy that it looks like I'm a busy actor. Um, oh, man, you, yeah, your, your IMDb list of things go is like 14 projects. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, if any of them happen, I'll be, you know, I hope they wanted to. Oddly, I met some financiers and put them together with the filmmakers, and they seem very happy to finance a couple of the films that I'm I'm not directing or producing. I'm just, I'm just in them. But, uh, but you know, until you're on the set and someone says action, and even then sometimes uh, the thing isn't happening, and then until yeah. you get to the end and edit and find someone to show it, uh, these are all just uh, dreams. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. But it's Dr. Bird, so what? tell me what you think. I liked it. You know, have you ever seen Mural and the Dying Girl? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it reminded Fantastic me a lot of movie. that film. Yeah. It's uh, it's very stylish. Yeah. I wasn't aware when we were shooting it how kind of, uh, trying to give a word that it doesn't suck, like alternative is the wrong word, or surreal, or Both. Lynchian, or yeah. whatever. There's just something about the telling of it is uh, part of the character. It's a, it's a, not self-consciously or deliberately wacky or something, but just a, it's a, it, it, me on the dying girl, I think it's a great parallel. Yeah, in, yeah, in totally. It's totally. Yeah, what was I mean? You just said what you said about it not being what you thought it would be. But when you got the script, where was it noted that it was going to be like that, or no? It wasn't so much that I got the script as I'd seen the short. Oh, I, I, I saw the short and I met the director and I said it's great. He said, "Well, I'm going to fantastic." And it was just a, a, a. I like to meet people that I think are great and talented. You know, not because I, I may or may not ever get to work with them. But he said, "Well, actually, I'm going to write a feature version of it." And I went. Wow. Are you, how are you going to, well, I don't understand what that would be. He goes, well, it's a book. And I adapted. So I remember the first script he sent me had a, got a, uh, a big juicy part, not juicy part, but a much bigger part for me. And I went, what the fuck did you do that for? You've got a really wonderful film and a story. And you just done that because you know, <laughs> I said, I didn't. He goes, no, no, I think it's great. And I went, I, I, you don't need to see him that much. It's not, it's not his story. Yeah. And um, so that went down a bit, but you know, I just, 
uh, I don't know how many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, something, I did a film called Skeletons. I just see my agents, God bless them, my English agents sent me, they send me everything. I tell them not to filter anything out. And so I, I there's a lot That's of That's beautiful. Stuff that I, I love that you do that. You know, I make us, I'm not that busy. I guess if I was getting 200 scripts a day, I would be more fussy. But also, I just think great stuff, you know, can slip between the cracks. So they sent me this thing. They went, look, these guys, they've not made films. They don't know what they're doing. They've made a short. It's not a decent part. You've all got to live in a cottage somewhere. It's like sandwiches from the supermarket for lunch. Please don't bother. Don't read it. And uh, I looked at the short and I phoned up. I said, I'm not even reading the script. I'm doing this job. And they went, what? And I went, did you watch the short? They went, no, we got a billion pieces of mail a day. And I went, watch the short. And I did the film, it's called Skeletons, and it, we went to the Edinburgh Film Festival alongside much, much bigger, noisier, expensive American product, and it won the best film. And um, wow. hardly anybody saw it. It had a tiny distribution deal in the UK. And in fact, this is how few people saw it. Every single screening was accompanied by a Q&A with the director. That's how often it was shown. Wow. Um, but it's still <laughs> one of my favorite films I've ever been in. And, uh, and similarly, I saw this short and I thought, this is a guy who, who can direct and can tell stories in a really interesting way and I'll be in it. And I don't know what he's going to do with my pieces of contribution. I don't know what angle the camera's going to be at. I don't know what we're going to cut to, what noise there'll be on it. This is someone who's telling stories in a non-traditional way and, and having been on television so much where it's a master close-up, close-up. It's, uh, it's a joy to be around someone who's using the camera creatively. And I, you know, going back to what you said about getting so many scripts, I, I love that because I've always wanted to do that myself. Talk to me, you know, what, when you get a script, what interests Jason Isaacs? What makes you, what do you, you know, is it, is it a balance of like what you've done before, what you want to do, an amalgamation of directors, writers, you know, stories, or just... I wish I had some intelligent answer for you, but who fucking knows? I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. I, you know, the first thing is, if someone's just asking me to repeat something I've done before, and, and by the way, it's that's not, it doesn't show a lack of imagination on their part. It's exactly what I do. You're thinking about how to cast something yeah. you want. You think, well, I've seen Bruce Dern play Crazy Old Man. We yeah. need Bruce Dern. You know, so your first thought is asking someone to do stuff they've done before. And if I read it and I go, well, I've done exactly that before, uh, unless it's some gigantic paycheck that will give me freedom to do whatever I want for the next yeah. five years, um, <laughs> then, I, then I don't do it. Because, and, and those things don't come along. Um, so there's that. And then I think, is the, you know, is the story interesting? Is it vaguely interesting, the whole thing? Never mind yeah. my contribution. And then my bit, can I make my bit interesting? Because I understand that sometimes, I can't quite imagine why, but sometimes having me in something will help them put a package together and raise money and stuff. And it might even look good because there's other yeah. famous people in it or they've done stuff before. But the fact is, I still have to come walk to the set, come out of my trailer, or if we haven't got a trailer, you know, walk from the car. And they say, action, I've got to do something. Can I do something that's interesting to me and hopefully interesting to people watching it and not just be there so that it can say, and Jason Isaacs? Because, you know, yeah. uh, so uh, it's a whole bunch of that stuff. And then sometimes it's, where is it? You know, yeah. they're always local, you know, or, uh, oh, I fancy holiday. Well, you know, it's a whole bunch of things. But mostly it's, can I be any good? But, you know, I, I, I'll confess that my vanity kicks in somewhere. Will I be shit? Yeah. And if I read it and I picture some other actor who I know or I admire doing it and doing it well and doing it better than me, I think, well, either I don't want to do it or sometimes that makes me scared enough to do it. Yeah. Um, but I don't think other people, anybody can cast you as well as you can cast yourself. So there's numbers of times I've turned something down. For instance, not just to when I've been asked to repeat something I've done before, but also if you think I'm X all the way through and I suddenly turn out to be the serial killer or vampire yeah. whatever the hell it is you know be aware the audience is going to bring that baggage with them 
Yeah. You know, they go, uh, because of what they know me from. So you sh- I want to do things that the audience aren't a mile ahead on as well. When, when you know, things like uh, the Patriot and Harry Potter came out, were you getting a lot of those villain, you know, was that just Hollywood calling you yeah. up and yeah. 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 And I kind of wish I, do I wish I don't know. There was a period of time after the Patriot, certainly uh, before Harry Potter, where I was offered uh, the bad guy opposite every, you know, bicep, brainless uh, Hollywood hunk. And I should have done them, I suppose. Uh, in terms of making myself a brand yeah. uh, and making myself, I guess, financially secure, I should have done them. Because you think at that time for the year or two, you think, well, this is, I guess I can always do that. Well, actually, the window's not open that long. And uh, when you, you, I went and did, played a drag queen after the Patriot in Sweet November. Then I did yeah. a play about, uh, in London, the Royal Court. And I, did, I can't remember, I did something else. And then I looked up again and suddenly the window was jammed tight shut on my fingers. And, uh, and then, you know, I did uh, the Potters, which are such a joy to do and such a pleasure. But it did mean that other similar villainous characters, uh, I was thought to be a cliche to cast yeah. because it was, it's too obvious to cast me in those things. And so there were numbers of parts I'd really liked to have done over the years. I thought were well-written things I read and they went, you just, it's a bit obvious casting you. Yeah. Yeah. So, Cause you're, you're doing that. And was it, you know, talk to me about that time during Harry Potter, because that was, you know, t- 10 years about of making mm-hmm. movies. Were you pretty locked into those films? Cause you know, you got the schedule and you got to do a film every X amount of months or no, years. No. Was it tough? Yeah, being no, far fi- from it. It was very tough uh, saying yes to them every time. Actually, I really loved doing them. Obviously, I, the, I love the films. They're great people. But every couple of years, they'd phone and go, we need you for two weeks in March, all of June, a day in October, and uh, you know, and three weeks in December, non-consecutive. And you go, that's not great yeah. for my rest of my year. Yeah, you know? I can't fit anything in. <laughs> and there were numbers of times I thought about not doing the next one because I didn't have much to do and because it was spaced out and, and it did rule out other jobs. There were numbers of other jobs you know, just couldn't schedule around it. They tried to be very helpful on Harry Potter and when they could, but you know, it's a big... Yeah, with lots of moving parts. Hundreds of millions so, of dollars. Uh, yeah, but also there's so many different logistical things. They go, well, I, I, I would like to let you out of that scene. That's the only time Emma Thompson is free and Robbie Coltrane is free or whatever. So they're moving all these pieces of jigsaw around all the time. So it was odd because uh, they're very high-profile films. So people assume you did them a lot. But actually, it was a very small part of my working life. Uh, and I did lots of television series and films and stuff in between. Um, but it was, they were difficult to schedule, and I struggled. I know lots of other actors did too with whether to do the next one. None of us were signed to a multi-picture deal. Yeah. And, uh, and at every point when it came to the blink, you know, get off the fence stuff, I went, I can't have somebody else put my wig on. Yeah. I just can't. Yeah. I can't leave, you know. Yeah. And was Lucius, you know, was that a joy to play that for so long, you know? Or is it tough acting with, with green screens? And yeah, it's cool to have Ray Fine, but you got all this thing that's going to come in, in post. And I mean, there's not that much acting. If you watch the films all together, there's, well, there's, there's probably 15 minutes in 10 years. Like, you know, there's, there's scenes. What it is, the, the tough thing about it is I'm looking around me and there's the greatest actors I've ever seen in my life, you know, all gathered around me in scenes and everybody's got their tiny little bit and they are chewing the fucking scenery up. Like, you know, nobody's underplaying. Anything, yeah. So you can sit around for a very long time and wait to do your four or five lines or moment. When you do it, you're like, you better hit the ground running and you better do something incredibly juicy because so you can disappear when you're surrounded by Michael Gamble and Maggie Smith and Emma Thompson and Jim Broadbent and, you know, Julie Walters. You just, there's a lot of great stuff going on. And uh, some days, you know, you'd be acting three or four minutes a day and you, the rest of the time you're 
you can get a bit dozy and dopey and you know eat too much chocolate and line your trailer but when you yeah. get to the camera you better produce yeah yeah and working with so many visionary filmmakers you know because i know so many great ones came out of that david gates and and what was was it different in each one's hands you know the experience or was it, it was, kind of like uh, 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 it was, but Chris Columbus set the tone. Chris Columbus, who I think maybe doesn't get enough credit for uh, establishing the world and choosing the actors and overseeing the design of it and bringing it to the page. Because, you know, there have been other very popular children's books that don't make it as films. Yeah. Um, most notably, the, you know, the Philip Pullman books, the Gold, Golden Compass didn't really work. They're doing very well now on, as a television series. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, that was hugely popular uh, books and didn't quite work. And Chris Columbus, I think, not only made great choices, but created an atmosphere um of play really i mean maybe it's because they had enough money to do it but you know i've been on sets where you just a feel books like this are gospel so there are many people around who know every single punctuation mark by heart yeah and yet we were encouraged and allowed to play and he did that thing of uh smart thing about asking these 11 12 year old actors what do you think what would you like to do you want to try something you know yeah and giving them ownership of it so there are numbers of things that i ended up doing on screen and that you know ended up being cut as well which are not in the book and you know the look of him was stuff I came up with and numbers of lines and moments in scenes. And you think you're watching a faithful adaptations of the book, but actually Joe Rowling was smart enough to go, you're the filmmakers, you're making films. They're a very different medium. You do what you need to do on screen and I'll do what I need to do in the books. Um, that's so so that atmosphere was set. So, yeah. so actually, you know, very different directors like Mike Newell and David Yates and stuff are all so different from each other. But there was always a sense that you could play and you could try things and you could take ownership and uh, and nothing was sacrosanct. So even though it's a it's a giant machine, it felt freer than lots of the small films I've been on. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's amazing. And and I, I love that so much. And I'm curious, you know, when you were doing that, was it was it paramount to you to always maintain theater? You know, is that something throughout your career that you wanted to do? <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> I, did, I did. I mean, I did. That's all I did. Obviously, when I was a student, that's what you do. And I did dozens and dozens of plays. Um, went to the Edinburgh Festival many, many times. Yeah. And, uh, and I've hardly done in 30 odd years of an actor. I think I've done four plays, maybe something like that. And uh, I do love doing plays when they're great. When theatre works, it, it's, like it's it. seismic. It's kinetic. It's, yeah. it's electric. But bad plays uh, or mediocre so plays. You just feel like, oh, I'm two hours closer to death, you fucking <laughs> me that time. Whereas I watch bad movies all the time, and it doesn't yeah. bother me. I watch bad TV all the time, and I can be in a bad movie or a mediocre movie that everybody went into with the best intentions, and I can have a great time making it. And if the end result doesn't turn out that great, I'm not even there when the end result. I'm not there when people are watching it. You know, yeah. My job was making it. It was always great. Well, when you're doing theater and it's mediocre, and all you want to do is turn to the audience and go, go home. Yeah. Save yourself. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Go and have a meal. Go home and have sex. Do something more fun than this. Yeah. Um, it's torture. So I've done, uh, I think I was spoiled because I did Angels in America so early on. Yeah. And it was with such Dan a high Craig. watermark. Yeah. With Dan Craig and Steve Delane and, and a bunch of other wonderful actors. And uh, it was just the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I happened to be in it. It was the greatest thing anyone in the audience had ever seen in their lives. And not because we were so wonderful, just because it arrived as a masterpiece and, yeah. and it moved the audience it made them laugh made them cry it made them think made them address the world that was outside the theater door and it surprised them and um you know i've been in some successful things since on the stage and they yeah. don't touch don't even approach the foothills of what that did so i'm slightly spoiled by it to be honest and what was that process like you know coming on the show that 
is now probably the world's most famous modern, you know, play of all time, I would it's say. It's the greatest modern play it, I, yeah. in the English language I, I've come across, yeah. Uh, what was it like? I knew it at the time. We all knew it. Going on everybody every night. Everybody knew something, yeah. something magical and electric happened in that room every night for everybody who watched it. We all used to stay in the wings. I mean, it's two, three and a half hour plays. We would stay in the wings and police each other, make sure nobody was making themselves bigger than the moment. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was an incredible experience, and uh, I can't remember if I told you this, but near the end of the run, I was sitting in the wings, looking a bit depressed, obviously, because the old, the two older actors in the seventies at the time walked by and they went, "You're right, Jace," and I said, "Not really. I was just thinking this is coming to an end soon, and whatever else I do for the rest of my working life, nothing will ever touch it. Nothing yeah. will ever be as great as this." And you would think they're in their seventies, they'd say to this guy who's in it, you know, what I was like twenty seven or twenty eight, they'd say, "Don't be silly. You've got your whole career ahead of you," and they said. Yeah, we were just saying in the dressing room how glad we are it's come to the end of our careers. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, but they were right. Uh, they were right. Yeah. But I mean, you know, how lucky to be. I've been in three or four things spread across the 30 odd years as an actor so far, and maybe others to come, that uh, I feel like, you know, we're special. You know, yeah. uh, Harry Potter was special. The OA was special. You know, yeah. and, uh, 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 some other individual projects. And, and Angels in America was, will always be, I think, the, the peak. Because I've always, you know, I I would I would literally buy a plane in COVID times to see you on a play in London. I would I would do anything. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but I, I th you're one of the greatest. No, I'm not. I'm not. That's very kind of you, but uh, but it's bullshit. But it's nice. I'm, I'm no, glad you mean it. I hope you mean it. I do mean every word of it. I swear to God. I'll tell I you what I've been very lucky to do, or smart even to do. I've tried to pick fantastic parts in fantastic stories told by fantastic people. You can't always do it. Yeah. Um. But there's been a few times in my working life where I've opened the, in the olden days when you got scripts in the post, I've opened the brown envelope, started reading, and thought, if I don't fuck this up, people are going to think, people are going to shower me with praise. I might even get nominated for something, you know? And, I, yeah. and sure enough, those have always been the times that people have credited me with a brilliance that utterly belongs to the writer. And yeah. I, I'm not saying I'm not perfectly good enough. I'm saying, you know, if you give me the ball, I can run with it. But great material creates great parts. And if you don't fuck it up and you're, you're prepared for it, you will look great as an actor. And so that's, you asked what my criteria was. I can't always do that because most stuff doesn't lend itself to things like that. But I try and find things that will make me look good because I'm that vain. Well, before we go into the great material, you know, I, I, I actually would like to stay on bad material for a second because this is why you were literally one of that's my- That's a long discussion. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but like- you know, I had the chance to, you know, when we met on abduction, you know, I had the chance to see you work and that movie was a piece of shit, but you were fucking amazing in every scene. You know, you own that father role and it's, you know, I tell actors all the time, every actor wants to be handed Angels in America, Clockwork Orange, yeah, yeah, you know, course, and, you, yeah, and you never yeah. get that. And it, that's what I tell actors on the show is like the trick in this business is learning to be good in something that's horrible, because like you said. You only get those jobs every so often, like Brotherhood, like the OA, like yeah, Harry yeah. Potter. It's true. So it's true. What, what would your advice be for those projects when we have to pay the Jesus. bills? Uh, do your best. I mean, fight your corner without burning any bridges. You know, if you think you can make something better with a small suggestion without offending the writers, you know, uh, um, then make it better and just try. I mean, the job of acting is misunderstood, I think, not by people watching this or listening to this, because there'll be people who know it already, but most of the public think that acting is doing the things that are in the script, saying the words and doing yeah. the actions. And we know that acting is filling up the 99.9% .9 of the character that is not in the script, so that the 0.1% that is on the page makes some sense as a whole person. Yeah. 
Yeah. So can you fill up the life? Can you make, can you fill up the things they're not saying, the things they're not doing, things they want to do, the things that they're hoping the other person will do and say? Can you do all that so that they manifest themselves as the things that are in the script? And if sometimes you bump against that, can you make a suggestion to change what's in the script? But, you know, even with abduction, when I read the thing, I thought my parts are right. Yeah. Maria Bello and I, I believe us as a couple, we, you know, we can do totally. some fun things. I buy that stuff as parents. And, and what happens after we're dead? Out of my hands. But, you know, I think it'll be fun. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I've been in a couple of things in my life where I've thought, okay, the whole, I think it's basically rubbish. Yeah. Uh, and it, but I've often been wrong, by the way, but yeah. I think going in. Because if will it would have work. worked, it would have been the biggest movie in the world. Sure. Yeah. But I, I've, a few times I've thought, this whole thing is never going to work, but my bit's going to work because I believe it. Yeah. If I believe it, then the audience will believe it. So, you know, that's, uh, I don't have any advice for anybody other than try, you know, I was very lucky early on when I came out of drama school, the guy who'd come out the year before had got a voiceover agent and uh, he didn't realize yet that you could make money from them and they were good. He just, she just found, found him and he got a job doing a season in repertory theater in Nottingham or somewhere. Yeah. And she said, well, hold on, I've put your Kleenex voiceover and, a, you know, palm olive soap. And he said, yeah, yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm going to the theater. And she went, well, what am I going to do? He said, well, um, I'll tell you who's good at voices. Jason Isaacs just came out of drama school and he recommended me unwittingly giving me a career in voiceovers when I first was a young actor. I don't really do many anymore. Um, and it gave me freedom to turn things down. Wow. And that was a huge difference because it meant I could not cherry pick. You've got to be offered them in the first place, but I could try and pick the things that I thought were decent. And uh, that's, you know, the only power you've got as an actor is to say no. Yeah. And so it's a rare I, I, one you get to exercise, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know. yeah. And, and the thing that I, you know, I'm really not trying to, sorry, metaphorically suck your dick, but the thing I love about you is that you make such distinct choices. And I'd love to talk about, because I, as an American, feel that the British are, are vastly superior because they study Shakespeare at a young age and they have, you know, these, there's no small choice in that. And Americans, you're lucky if you do it in high school, maybe, you I know. Well. I th first of all, I didn't study Shakespeare, but also I don't think, I think what happens with a lot of British actors when they come to America and get some work is that they, if they've trained at all as an actor, they've done, uh, they've, they've tried to hew to that course of being a chameleon. They've tried to create different characters. First of all, if you grow up in England at all, Britain, and you want to be an actor, you better be able to do different accents. Yeah. Because we, we, judge people instantly we categorize people by their accent not just in terms of uh you know how much it's regional or not but also you can hear within someone's accent what kind of education they've had what kind of cultural background yeah. they come from how they like to be perceived yeah it's yeah. more than class it's more than that okay. anymore. i don't have class i don't know class definitions even work anymore but you know both where they grew up what education they've had maybe where their parents came from how they're striving to be perceived, whether they're deliberately dumbing their accent down or whether they're trying to be a bit more street. All those things are apparent to everybody in Britain. So wow. if you're going to be a British actor, you better learn to place those, you know, make those choices yeah. in, in your accents. So first of all, there's that when we come there. But also, uh, so I've been on the other side of the camera a few times in, in America when I've been producing things and, you know, or acting in things and producing them. And I've been all the auditions. And I've seen a bunch of people come in the room who are, Fabulous. Lots of them. There's lots of great actors in LA, you know, yeah. um, who've come from all over the country, but they fall into two distinct camps. One is the, the bunch of people who just are fabulous in their yeah. life. They're gorgeous men or women, you know, they're the prom queen or the prom king and the, you know, the quarterback. Or and some people have gone, you should go to Hollywood because you're yeah. fucking amazing. And yeah. they come in the room and what they're selling 
is their amazingness, their sexiness, their charisma. It's a real thing. And yeah. you can become a big movie star from it. And it doesn't mean they're not good actors because they act that. Yeah. You know, and still got to make the moment real moment to moment. And then there's the people who want to come and create a character that's a long way from them. Yeah. Because my, my estimation, there's something slightly broken in their childhood. Like, you know, yeah, totally. they're, yeah. they're trying to fix something in the mold and they maybe can live better through other people and they want to create, a, create something other than themselves. Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of the times, unless you've gone to drama school, you're really always asked to play something that you look and sound like. Totally. It's rare that someone's going to come along and say, will you play a quadriplegic, you know, like yeah. my left foot. In fact, but they wouldn't even do that anymore, you know. Yeah, no, would they would hire Dustin the Hoffman? real thing. Yeah. yeah. Would you be autistic or would you, you know, whatever. Uh, it's rare that people are asked to play anything outside what walks in the room. Yeah. So if you're British, you've at least at a drama school done that 30 or 40 times, played something a long way from yourself. Yeah. So you're more likely to make a bold choice because you're not selling your fabulousnessness is that word fabulousness no it is and you're not yeah. selling your own, you're not even in your own accent yeah. so you're already building a character yeah. so that that might be why sometimes uh, Americans get on set and think that English people are making bigger choices because it's all a choice like when I did Brotherhood uh, Jason Clark is from Australia and I yeah great apparently apparently it's according to other people were much much closer to the Providence Rhode Island accent than a lot of the actors from Boston which is 40 minutes up the road wow. partly because we had to put an accent on yeah. I'm from England. He's from Australia. We had to build an accent from scratch. We got local people. We modeled it phonetically. We had a dialect coach. They're from Boston and they didn't grow up doing accents. And so making the adjustment was weird, hard, you know, uh, unnecessary for them. And um, I think it's the same thing with acting that, you know, if you, if you are something like what your cast has, you can just do that. And you look at, you know, Tom Hiddleston or whoever it is next to you and you go, wow, that's a big choice you're making. Yeah. That's because totally. that's because any, you have to make a choice. In fact, the other, finish off this rant is one of the things that always amuses me when I'm in America is people go, I love how you can drop your accent. It's amazing how you just drop it. And I think drop it because you think I'm putting it on. You think <laughs> everybody in the world is putting on a Swedish accent or a French yeah. accent. And if they just dropped it, the default would be an American accent underneath. Well, no, I'm putting an American accent on yeah. changing my vowels and yeah. changing my, you know, where in my mouth I'm talking from, you know? Yeah. At Central, do you guys even do that? Do you work on American accents? Like, we do neutral American speech. You guys... Yeah, we work on... Yeah. We, yeah. we work on... I mean, it was 400 years ago. But yeah, we worked on uh, a little bit on American, mostly on British dialects, and also okay. on being neutral, because I'm from up north, so I, I talk like that when I grew up. I'm from Liverpool, so I had a very mild Liverpool accent like that. And then we moved to London, and I went kind of full cockney i went kind of probably tim rothish you know yeah and then um i went to university and they're all you no know, all everybody spoke like hugh grant yeah and then, um, <laughs> and then i had to, i've got this i'm this kind of hybrid mongrel of voices depending on who i'm talking to so yeah. when i'm in america playing an american i stay in that accent all day yeah and uh and it begins to bed in and feel natural so even if it doesn't sound good to anybody else it's consistent yeah. And you have um, to do that work. I mean, that's what I did. You know, um, I'm curious, you know, cause you just mentioned it brotherhood. This hmm. it was about 2007. What, when did that show start? 2005. We did the pilot. I think it went out 2006, seven and eight or 2006, eight. And so nine, this was in the middle of, of Harry Potter still, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. how did, how did this come two. your way? Because this show, I always describe to people, as I told you in the last, you know, part one, that it's my little secret. You know, I love it because this show, is fundamentally, if The Wire and The Sopranos were amalgamized together, this brotherhood would be it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a hell of a show. It's a, yeah. It, it was, 
it was brutal writing and uh, just very unsentimental and brilliantly shot. Philip Noyce directed the pilot and kind of set the tone for how it looked as well. And you really saw Providence all shot on wide angles. Yeah. With, um, not wide angles, wide lenses with uh, faces close to you. You would see the landscape everywhere. And, and we... And it was just, it was an amazing uh, show. I didn't realize at the time it was my first American TV series. I'd guessed it. That was your first? Wow. Yeah, I'd guessed it on the West Wing and Entourage and stuff, but I hadn't done uh, a show and I hadn't realized, it's only in retrospect, I realized the incredible freedom that the writers had to tell any story they wanted any week they wanted. There was no requirement to, you know, to tie things up. There's no requirement to be redemptive. And, you know, having then done a cop show for NBC, which is a very different thing, you know, and, and other pilots where there's many voices trying to work out what to mold, they were really given their head, Henry and Blake, to write, you know, to go off in any direction they wanted. And I think you can feel it. You watch yeah. it, you can feel the author's voice. He won a, a Peabody uh, yeah. prize, you know, and I think for good reason, because you watch it, you can feel that it's, uh, you can feel the author's voices on the screen. Yeah. I think, and, and that how they were allowed to do outrageous things or things that would be outrageous if it was on network TV. Yeah. yeah. And when, when you were approached with the, the project, was it always Michael Caffey? Then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was always Michael. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I fancy Michael. He was, a, it was, he was an amazing, I mean, it's an amazing, for those people who haven't seen it, there's two based roughly on two brothers actually who are in Boston, who are real guys, but, uh, one was um, actually in, in Congress, right? Yeah, one's in Congress and the other yeah. was Whitey Bulger, who yeah. was uh, one of the most wanted lists on the FBI. And it was originally going to be in Boston and close, Hugh, close to that story. But then there was a tax break in Rhode Island. Uh, I was thrilled because Whitey Bulger was still on the loose. Yeah. So, you know, and I was essentially, <laughs> I'm playing him. Yeah. And there's two brothers and they're, you know, they're, 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 and oddly, the politician is probably more morally compromised than the gangster oh, who sure. leaves a life of extreme violence, but with a kind of quite rigid, ethical universe and then at some point i had my head staved in at the end of season one yeah um because i wanted to leave and they wouldn't let me <laughs> oh really <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah uh and uh so uh then i had brain damage which you know that was brilliantly written gave me maybe more uh struggle more mentally it was a it was a fantastic thing to be able to act and i had the great privilege of spending time in the road island brain injury association and people make oh, opening wow. up their lives to me and uh me seeing what they had to go through. And so it was just, it was a very complicated, beautifully written part. And yeah, uh, yeah and I didn't like, like most of the best parts of my life, I hadn't wanted to do it. Uh, I, I was offered it when, in the aftermath of Peter Pan, Peter Pan came out and was a terrible flop. And I thought it was the best film I'd ever made. And yeah. um, it was a beautiful film. It got, you know, glowing reviews and anyone yeah. who saw it loved it, but nobody saw it. Nobody bought tickets to it. And so I was in Hollywood jail. And I, I'd rented a house already paid in advance, I think, to go and live for a year. And uh, my wife and my newborn baby was there. And, uh, and I just couldn't get a walk on in, you know, CSI Hancock Park. Wow. I, just couldn't, I just couldn't get seen for anything at all. Yeah. My film career was, uh, it was over. It was, you know, certainly over for the foreseeable future uh, because this gigantic film, uh, I was the only adult actor who was in all the way through. And so I was given the blame for it. Uh, and I was, I changed agents. But it all came those so big after the fact, right? You know, like. No, and listen, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. And I, I, it was, uh, and over in the subsequent 20 years, it's become a huge hit. Yeah. Because it has been recognized as, as a masterpiece, really. But at the time, it lost a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, I couldn't get any film work and I just couldn't accept that. I just, I just didn't know what to do. I did the thing that actors do, which is change my agent. I changed my manager. I, you know, all but had an entire facelift and a, you know, a new nose. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, <laughs> And then I was offered, my new agent, when you've been offered a pilot, 
Uh, and I was like, well, I don't want to do TV. I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a film actor. Yeah. I wasn't looking in the mirror and going, yeah. you're not a film actor. <laughs> Someone who used to be a film actor who is blamed for a giant flop. Um, and I almost didn't do it, which would have been a terrible mistake. Thank God I did do it. They persuaded me to do it uh, because it was just a fantastically written part. And the chance to tell a story over a longer period that's much richer and more complex and surprising. Yeah. And I got to live in Rhode Island three years running for six months with my uh, my second baby was born there. She's American. Oh, wow. Um, and made a lot of friends there. So yeah, it was a, it was a great show. It was a great sparring with Ethan and Embry and Jason, you know, was it? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I mean, it was, it was a very tense set. There was some quite big personalities there uh, behind the cameras. And, and I've heard cameras. that. So yeah. there was some, quite a lot of arguing going on. Um, but in the end, I guess, you know, the friction made for good work on camera. It was, yeah. uh, it was not, a, it wasn't the happiest work environment. Uh, I had a good time uh, yeah. because, you know, I had this beautiful life at the weekend. This big, I'd be during the week surrounded by, you know, needles and junkies and either fake violence or real criminals. Gangsters would seek yeah. me out to talk to me all the time. Small place for a done. Um, and then at the weekend, I'd let this, you know, we were living on the ocean there and we'd go blueberry picking or whatever. And then I'd come back to, uh, you know, brothels and, and uh, murder and yeah. strangling during the In week. Brown University. Odd, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was an odd existence. Yeah. Providence is a very interesting city. Yeah. Uh, but that's amazing. And, and I love that show so much. And so when that wrapped, you know, talk to me about, you know, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but like the OA, that, that was shot, the pilot, with someone else, right? Yeah, the OA, it's, it's yeah. So a lot of the best work uh, I've ever done are things that I didn't want to do or were cast with someone else or I was a replacement or whatever. And the, the OA, uh, to, to rewind further, 2005, I did a film called Nine Lives that you probably would have seen, which is made by Rodrigo Garcia, who was a magnificent filmmaker. And it went to Sundance, did very well. I don't, don't think it came out theatrically. It's nine separate stories about women. Each one is a single, unbroken Steadicam take. And it's oh, like a vignette. work of genius. So yeah, it's phenomenal. And each of the women are kind of, you know, Robin Wright and Glenn Close and oh, Sissy wow. Spacek, and you know, they're all phenomenal in it. And I'm in a section with Robin Wright called Damien and Diana. And uh, it's this unbroken 60-minute take, and it's just fantastic. Let me not fantastic. I mean, it is fantastic. And it, it, it was named Scene of the Year in the New York Times, and it's still taught in film schools all over the world. And Rodrigo, who's gone on to make many successful films, and Bull, the TV show that I know that you've auditioned for. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's EP on it. Um, he said, God, that fucking thing haunts me. Every time I go anywhere, all they want to talk about is Damien and Diana from Nine Lives. <laughs> I've made so many films. <laughs> but anyway, they, uh, the people who made the OA, Britt Marling, who wrote it, and Zabat Manglish, who directed yeah. it, have been obsessed with that clip, uh, that 15-minute section for, wow. for years and years. They've watched it hundreds of times. They had a still of it up on the wall when they were writing. Um, and uh, they when they were casting the show they didn't think of me they thought of someone younger and different and uh and they cast i don't say who it is it's not fair to yeah. me, but anyway they cast somebody who was not an english speaker uh, as a first language and they were told by his agent he speaks perfect english and he's not done a lot of acting before but he'd done something very high profile uh, and well and they fought and fought with netflix to cast him and they shot with him and it was <laughs> it was apparent pretty quickly there was a terrible a mistake. But they're so, they're so <laughs> creative yeah and so you know so prepared to take risks they did that, and then it got to the day before they were going to shoot a scene at Grand Central Station, which is, even for an expensive Netflix show, that's yeah. a big budget day, and it's a day you're not going to reshoot. Yeah. And they called Netflix, and they went, listen, can we replace the guy playing Hat? And they went, are you fucking kidding? After all the struggle, they went, <laughs> yeah. I know, uh, but I'm afraid we made a mistake. Then, well, who can you get at short notice? 
And they went, well, we'll get someone. And they, uh, and they remembered that they'd looked at Damien and Diana all the time. And it's, you know, the, it's their yeah. favorite thing. And so they, uh, they called me and they called somebody else who I also shouldn't name who said, um, I, had a, I, I got a call late at night, I think, from my agent going, listen, I'm sending you some scripts, read them now. There's eight scripts. And I went, I read them at midnight. He goes, you don't go to sleep. You're an insomniac. Read. I said, yeah. I know, but I binged a Netflix show last night. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually tired today. I didn't go to bed. Uh, actually, why don't I ever get off a Netflix show? He went, ha, this is a fucking Netflix show. Pour yourself <laughs> a coffee, read the scripts. So I read them and they were fantastic. And uh, he Very said, okay, cerebral. Did you get it uh, as you read cerebral, it? Cerebral, no. I just thought they were, I'd never read anything like them. Yeah. I'd never seen, I mean, it just felt like they were inventing storytelling without ever having watched a minute of anybody else's film or television. Yeah. It just felt like they were telling their own story in their own way. So clearly it had a very powerful woman's voice at the center of it. It wasn't a kind of, it's possible to think of male narratives. I don't know if that's fair. Yeah. Zal wrote Hoffit. Whatever. I just, I was completely intrigued by it. Yeah. And, uh, and and so I Skyped with Sal at two o'clock in the morning and I said, oh, it's, a, it's amazing. It's fantastic. And uh, he said, okay, fantastic. Well, it's great. Okay. So I got off the phone and the agent calls like three o'clock. How'd it go? I go, I, I, yeah, I think it's me. He goes, okay, well, you'll be on a plane at eight in the morning. You've got to shoot the scene tomorrow. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, no, it's tomorrow. The thing's tomorrow. And I'm like, fuck. Then he calls back at four o'clock and he goes, go to sleep. It's not going to be you. I go, what? He goes, they don't... Before talking to you, they'd offered it to an old friend of theirs, and uh, he said yes. And I go, I just, I just, what? really? Okay. Oh my so, god! And then I get a text from Zal going, "Call me." And I, I text him. I said, "Listen, mate, you don't need yeah. to apologize. It's fine. You've offered it to an old friend. It is what it is. You know, I was excited for an hour, and now I'm going to what, bed." What went, a no, gentleman no. <laughs> you yeah. are! He said, "No, no, call me." And I went, "It's really, honestly, you must." And he went, "Fucking call me." And I called him. He goes, "I want you. Okay, I want you to do it. Will you please do it?" So anyway, there was a night of misconceptions and I got on a plane. I went there and uh, I fell madly in love with Sal and Brit and, yeah. and the show. Uh, I went straight to Grand Central Station virtually. I think I had a costume fitting and I went there and, and shot that first scene where I met Brit. I met Brit as Prairie. Yeah. And um, I'd been there two minutes and I said to Sal, listen, I, obviously I've just arrived, but I wonder if blah, blah, blah in the scene. He went, Dude, you, you know the. He didn't say dude. He would never say dude. He said. Uh, he said you know the. He said you know the character much better than I do already. What do you think? Which is such a loving, generous, fabulous piece of direction. Yeah. I watched him do that to a lot of the young actors, the ones who never acted before, even some of them, and empower everybody to make the to make and own their choices. Um, and it's one of the reasons the show is so human and beautiful because everybody took ownership of what they were doing. Yeah, it is so beautiful. And it's one of those shows you have to really experience more than watch it, you know, because it's such a, it, 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 it is yeah. its own. Ex well, know, I, I, feel like I lose all, if I ever have any objectivity, I don't know why I, I was sent, I, I thought it was special while I'm making, I thought something was just working uh, fabulously well. And then I was sent uh, a link the night before I had to do a junket here. So in, in England, I was made from eight o'clock in the morning. I was going to meet, you know, 50 journalists at five minute intervals through the day, yeah. talk about it, but I hadn't seen any of it. And I could feel like, I felt like I was in the hands of someone who knew what he was doing when Zal directed it all. Um, and Brit was clearly, you know, just hypnotic uh, yeah. in the scenes, but I didn't know what it looked like. So I put it on nine o'clock at night for thinking I'd have a five minute look at it. And I binged all eight hours. I finished at five in the morning. Wow. I was slightly hysterical. When, uh, when I mean, when I finished, I was crying and laughing and shaking and feeling like I'd been at some religious meeting where people yeah. had spoken in tongues or something. Totally. Something odd yeah. happened to me by the end. I'm like, what? And I wrote this gushing uh, email to them to kind of just ranting and raving, you know. Yeah. Um, 
And then I went to bed for two hours and I woke up and I thought, a bit like a morning after you wake up with someone in your bed and I thought, what did I say? <laughs> a man of my age is yeah. so undignified that I yeah. raved at them. And then I looked at it and I thought, Do you know what? I still think that's true, yeah. even though it's embarrassing. And uh, and I stayed a wow. huge, huge fan of that show. Um, and I remember seeing, I don't want to spoil it. It's got, they boy, did they know how to do the end of the season to hook you into the next season. Well, the second season it, ending is one of the yeah. best endings of so a show. So the, the end of the first season, I'd, I'd not been that moved ever watching something. And I couldn't understand why. I mean, I watch Shoah, you know, yeah. <laughs> this list, like, how could I be that moved by something so fantastical? But I what do you think it was? Ways, I think, well, first of all, I think to deconstruct it is to uh, reduce it, you know. Yeah, but okay. I know that I've met lots of other people who have the same feeling. So I think it's something to do with the fact that in the face of the worst thing imaginable, those people, those five characters who had no faith at all in this magical thing they were presenting, they thought yeah. it was all bullshit. And she was like, they had nothing else other than human contact. And they just wanted to make contact. If they were going to die, they wanted to make contact with another human being. Yeah. And there was something so beautiful in that. Uh, yeah. That was incredibly moving. Um, whether it worked or not, that was the great mystery between season one and season two. Did that really do anything? Or but or was it just the weirdness of it? But it was, I don't want to spoil it again for people watching, but I, I don't know. I think if most I'm, people I'm have seen moving. it at this point but if there, a lot of people haven't yeah it be oh really if everyone had seen it, it would be cancelled i um, i loved it i, I mean I, I i really i was shocked when it the got end, yeah yeah well not as shocked as we were but at the end of the second season i read it and i went no 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 you you jumped the shark you guys are idiots this is no that you I'm knew sorry. they were gonna end it the with that has no 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 i just oh. thought the world i thought you can't go anywhere there's nowhere to go in season three after you do that how can you what could you possibly do next so i phoned zal and i went Dude, what could you possibly? He said, "Come for dinner," and I went for dinner, and they told me, and my jaw hit the ground, and I just, I redoubled my admiration of him. I went, "Oh, I'm so fucking wrong. I'm so sorry." Oh my you're genius, god, you're geniuses! Yeah, they had so many. That kills ideas. me to now know that. Next, yeah. Is there any hope for that? You know, to to, no, to get no, picked. It's, it's it's done. Ah, oh, we were all I mean, so. It's, look, it's still there's still two beautiful, brilliant, and, and very, very original stories that are definitely worth watching, but I don't think we'll ever finish telling all five seasons. And was yeah. that a fun character for you to play, Hap? You know, I mean... It was. I mean, I think he's, you know, uh, on the surface of it, this is, you know, he may be the antagonist of the piece in the first season, at least. He's yeah. a guy who's... Means well, ...in his though. basement. But this is a guy who was going to cure death. I mean, he's actually going to make the scientific breakthrough he's going to, he's overseeing, discovering, will mean that no one has to die again. And by the time you get to the second season, it means everyone can live their own perfect imagined life. They can travel to parallel universes, yeah. never die, and live the perfect life. So the fact that a few people have to suffer quite badly for it, not that, I mean, not, not that they don't suffer. You know, he kills them, brings them back to life, but they do come back to life. He's not a murderer. He yeah. never wants to be a murderer. He's also not a sadist. Yeah. He doesn't enjoy any of it. He can see what the rewards are on a bigger scale for mm -hmm. all of mankind for all time. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of nothing. He's prepared to shoulder the burden of that morally and cut himself off from it. And I think the brilliance of their writing is that into that mix, there is though a girl who I make a subject of these experiments, who I expect to be able to stand outside and admire me nonetheless yeah. and love me nonetheless because yeah. you can see the bigger picture. That's the vanity and, and uh, you know, complexity of this man that he thinks, but surely you can see also the yeah. thing we're a part of.
Yeah. And I don't know, how often do you get to no, write something like so that? No, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And, and I'd love to talk to you, you know, you, 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 you spoke so eloquently about, you know, the rarity of getting these great pieces of writing. Yeah. And yeah. for you and your... And finding collaborators like that as well. Exactly, so, Sal and, and you know, Henry yeah. and all those great writers and JK. But I'm curious, you know, for you... Like the OA to me was so huge. And obviously I know Netflix is very internal about their numbers and their politics, but for you, what do you think sometimes makes something catch on versus not? Is it, is it the zeitgeist? Is it the moment in the world? Is it, you know, right material, right time? Because there's so many things that have, that have taken off that I think Mm -hmm. like deserved it. And so many things that have not, that I thought were essential and some of the best work I've ever seen. Uh, well, first of all, it's it's easier on a Monday morning to say why people won or lost a game on a Saturday. You know? So <laughs> I can I can tell you why Peter Pan didn't sell tickets, for instance, stuff like that. Can, um, but some things do and some things don't. If anybody really knew, you know, then they would just stay in their job running yeah. the studios or as an executive Making hit after forever. Hit. Yeah, and they don't. They wait until they've had enough failures, they get fired, and they hope they've saved money or they get a production deal. Yeah. Um, you get as many talented people together as you can. You make something as good as you can. You launch it as best as you can. Uh, when things, when movies fail, we're often told it was the marketing. Uh, when indies fail, you're told because you weren't open long enough to do any advertising. Um, sometimes something just catches a light for no good reason at all. Uh, it's not a meritocracy, but you know, it's, but in the broad sweep of things, great things, uh, you know, the things that become very successful. I did the Robert McKee course years ago. Oh, now, Robert yeah. McKee is the famous. Uh, he's a famous screenwriting guru yeah. who's parodied in the film adaptation by uh, with uh, by Brian Cox that were Nicholas Cage plays twins. But he actually he's featured in a few films. He's the guy that's taught many many writers and unfortunately taught many studio executives, given them a language and a jargon with which to give notes and stuff. Um, but he came into a room full of very cynical British filmmakers and writers and actors and stuff, and he said, "Listen, you're all sitting there thinking." Who the fuck is this guy to come in and tell us how to write popcorn bullshit movies? Yeah. We don't want to write that kind of thing anyway. And he said, good luck to you. Write whatever you want. Write obscure indies, write, you know, television that goes on at four o'clock in the morning that, you know, the, the 20 people who watch it are great. But if you want to write something that's very popular, don't turn your nose up at films that make hundreds of millions of dollars because they don't do it because they're put on a bunch of lunchboxes. They don't do it because there's a poster on every subway and corner. If you make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, it's because people want to see the thing more than once. Yeah. It's because people go back and repeatedly view it and they view it later on streaming or DVD. He goes, and you might still not want to make that film, but you can't pretend that it didn't hit some kind of chord with people. It resonated. So, you know, Emily in Paris is very successful this year. Yeah. You know, it resonated. People wanted a holiday in Paris. Lily, they ab- want- abduction family. <laughs> yeah, from the, yeah, you know, Lily yeah. was a joy to watch. You know, some some things become suddenly listeners. People wanted the Tiger King in lockdown when yeah. lockdown first started. It oh was my the god! Probably show ever. Um, you know, sometimes film magnificent indie films don't get seen by anyone and close because they're opposite the wrong thing that weekend or there was the wrong thing on the poster. Yeah, there is no pants. If you ask me what makes things successful, I've no idea. And, and the uh, when it comes to my own work. I think I learned a very, very long time ago to enjoy the work and yeah. let go of the results because I have no control over it. And the strangest things have become huge and the most wonderful things have disappeared. Wow, that's so beautiful. And I'm curious to ask you, you know, now in the landscape where film and television ad is, it, it, it's really changed, you know, right after Brotherhood, the rise of Netflix happened, House of Cards happened, and then mm-hmm. all these companies started doing streaming and then eventually streaming turned into original movies and then, you know, and then the Mar- pandemic has, has yeah. killed the theaters. Yeah, it's it. ki- yeah, yeah, probably. I, I mean, 
I hope not forever, but who knows, you know, now movies are coming home. Yeah. And the experience is different now because, you know, they, as you said, these hundred million dollars movies, people go back and they can make $300 million on, uh, you know, $150 million movie and they can make $3 million on a $15 million movie. And so they're going to choose the $300 million. So as you've navigated this landscape, what's it been like for you as an actor? Is it, is it Marvel? Or is it a streaming thing? Or is it? Or is there still hope for indies? I mean, uh, well, he's always an actor. You don't talk to me as a, a would-be occasional producer and somebody yeah. that sits on film boards and stuff. Do you have a production company? No, uh, no. Oh. no, I don't. I mean, I, I have a loan art company in America, but uh, uh, no. But I produce things. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, producing or co-producing with people and find money and, and develop scripts and stuff. And, and um, they're really labors of love. If you're making a film, if you're making an independent film, uh, everybody is still driven to do it because yeah. that's the, you know, it somehow feels like, uh, you know, carving a statue out of a tree or something. And, and you all want to make film. But the fact is that most independent films either don't get seen by anybody or if they're lucky, goes to streaming. Yeah. And very, very few of them go to a, a theater, you know, what we call the cinema. And very few of them are there in the second week when they do. It's a minute, the drop-off rate is enormous. Yeah. So uh, they're hobbies, really. Everybody I know who's a film producer is trying to be a TV producer. Everybody yeah. wants to make films. So uh, I want to make TV series because that way you're getting an income and someone else is paying for the making of it. You don't have to jigsaw together funding. It's different if you're getting funded by one of the few big studios. Yeah. They're making fewer and fewer and fewer films all the time. And Netflix and Amazon and Disney and Hulu and, you know, these guys all have checkbooks and they're making some single dramas now. I don't know if you can still call them films, but they're making single dramas. And, and that's why Paul Greengrass and Alfonso Cuaron and Martin Scorsese are making, you know, they're just, that is the way the wind has blown. Yeah. And to, to, to regret it, uh, it's like regret, you know, to regret the coming of the, you know, the death of the steam engine. It just is what it is. That's it, how people are watching it. Uh, I think and hope that we will still all want to gather in large numbers to be told stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we always have, and stories hit home that much harder and that much deeper and make you feel less alone when you're told it in a group. Communal catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how big your screen is or how fabulous your Dolby sound is. There is nothing like being in a room with uh, a dark room with a bunch of other people being told something human, something about being human. Well, it, screen, I think it's it, like it controls you versus you controlling it in a movie. You can't, pause and and get a you know a soda water or go to the bathroom and watch it in increments when you go to a 2 p.m showing you're committed to being there for 90 minutes or however long the film is and i think that's Ooh. such a beautiful thing you know going to the movies is so essential because you know when we watch these things at home we control the experience we can pause it we yeah, can yeah. get a peanut butter and jelly we can get a soda water right. we can come back we can do it another day finish the rest when we go to the theater it controls us we have to be there if we pee, we miss critical moments. You know what I mean? Sure. And there's nothing like that experience. And But it's also, it's not, I, I, yes, you're right. That's to do with your interaction with the screen and the sound and how much of your eye, your vision is taken up. But for me, it's about the other people in the room, yeah. even if you never speak to them. You know, it's most manifest in comedy because you all laugh at the same thing. You laugh totally. at shit you wouldn't laugh at if you're by yourself or you scream and then you laugh because you scream. But even when you're not making a noise that's as obvious as that, you're acknowledging each other's humanity. You're seeing yeah. someone do something, being petty, being jealous, being angry, being, you know, uh, uh, struggling with their ego, things that we've all done. And because there are other people watching at the same time, even if people, you're not making acknowledging noises, 
you are acknowledging with other people, yeah, that's us. That's human yeah. beings up on the screen. It's incredibly powerful. So I hope that it comes back, but it's, it's difficult because, you know, there were days when my big fat group wedding, for instance, would be made as a small film. We rolled out yeah. city by city by city. And, uh, you know, the actors would go to each city and publicize it and be on local radio and TV and stuff. Those, the, now you've got to launch now. So, you know, I've got a wonderful movie in Sundance. Um, I, I'm in. I, yeah. I'm in mass, which is yeah. a fantastic film. Some, in order to put it on in cinemas, well, first of all, cinemas have to be open, so I don't know what's going to happen with that, but um, you, you can buy a film, and it doesn't matter whether it's a million-dollar film, a $300,000 film, or a $10 million film. You've then got to pay for it to be in all the cinemas. Yeah. And you've got to pay for posters. And you've got to pay for advertising. And you've got to pay for radio spots. And to, so it's a huge investment, hoping that you will get the money back for those things. So it's yeah. a, a, indie films are... They're a labor of love. So I'll tell you this, my, my first day in LA ever, I think, my brother who had, had been at university with a guy who was a film producer, and uh, he gave me his phone number, and I went to, probably I went to a pay phone in those days. I'm not sure we, no one had mobile phones. And um, I called him up and he said, yeah, I'm out in Malibu. Come, come visit me in the house. I said, okay. So I got Thomas's Guide. I drove out to Malibu. Thomas Guide. That's so old, man. Yeah, I remember exactly. those. <laughs> and I, I buzz on it. It's one of these beautiful white buildings right by the ocean. I buzz on it. And he says, hi, I'm, listen, I'm down the end of the garden. I'm under the, uh, I'm in the orange grove, just under the tree. Okay. Just walk through the house. Yeah. And I walk through and it's just, you know, a palace like something out of Entourage. And down there's a corridor which has posters on the walls of, all of the indie films that I've seen for the last decade, you know, yeah. all of the ones that won Sundance stuff like that. I'm like, shit, his name's on all these things. I'm hooked up. My yeah. brother's scored. And I go I walk down the end of this garden. I can see the ocean. I see this guy sitting in white linen pants with a yeah. laptop. It's, you know, it's just, I mean, he goes, Hey, you're Brent's brother, right? And I go, yeah. He goes, he picked a weird day to come see me. And I go, why? He goes, do you see the posters in the house? And I go, yeah, yeah. Did you, did you make those? Yeah. I made all these movies. I said, that's amazing. He goes, yeah, I made in total. All those movies, maybe $35,000 over a decade. You, you've just come to see me on the day I'm going back into Madison Avenue, going back in advertising. You can't make fucking money making movies. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. Um, oh, my God. So, uh, you know, some people do, and some people can, there's grants, there's so, what you call soft money, you know, from uh, areas that are, have tax breaks. Yeah, and there's, Atlanta there's, or there's, something like that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Oddly, because of the precariousness of the world, film which used to be a very high risk investment is not that high risk anymore compared to everything else because nobody's getting a return on their money anyway so yeah there is more money around to be put into film and i see all these business plans where these poor suckers are being encouraged to invest in film and they go look blair witch project cost ten thousand dollars and it took a hundred million dollars well that's not the normal model i'll tell yeah. you now yeah. um so i don't know what's going to happen i do know that the urge i'm on the board of uh, british independent film awards so i'm on one of the oh, committees amazing. and you know it's like the British, the British version of the Spirit Awards. And we had hundreds of films submitted this year. People still will mortgage their house. They'll max out their credit cards. Yeah. They'll do it with their phone. People still have stories to tell, and lots of them are magnificent. So, uh, you know, the, the difficulty is persuading audiences to seek them out and find yeah. them because they're never going to be on your the front thumbnail that Netflix books up. Right, Amazon. right, yeah. You need to find them either on a more obscure websites. Maybe the big streamers won't pick up the small films. Uh, and or buy tickets for film festivals online. Yeah. You know, Sundance starts next week. Normally, you've got to go to Park City in Utah yeah. Yeah. and line up in the snow to try and get a ticket. Now, anybody in the world can watch these movies. Yeah. So if you're interested in great original independent films, watch, go to film festivals from your front room. Go well, to that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to see Mass. Uh, 
dude, Jason, one of the reasons I, you're in my top five and you're the best is you work more than Leo, Brad, or those things. You do better work. You know, the, the performance is in the toy. That's very nice. No, it is they, true. It, they but, work a lot. They've got to find movies warrant them being in it they're aware they can't do a little movie you know it's never a little movie i, I guess that's fair I've, you know. I've not thought about that but the thing that i i love about you is that you work more than any of those actors right and you know you're not photographed coming out of one oak you know what i mean talk to me about fame has that been something that's just not interested you that side of the business I'm, i mean if i was there i wish that we were doing this in the face uh, you know face to face We'd go for a walk and nobody would know who I was and that would be wow. absolutely fine. I, I'm not, I'm not famous. I'm a working actor. I've had a, some lead parts. I've had mostly, uh, you know, character parts and things. And, uh, and I just, uh, you know, I'm married with kids. There's nothing interesting about my private life at all. It's spectacularly dull. No one's going to, you know, I'm not breaking it up with anyone or fighting them on set. And yeah. just, uh, I do my work and I, you know, I disappear into the character. I mean, look, Brad and Leo, for instance, both of them I'm not trying to actors. belittle them, by the no, way. No, no, they're no, saying, <laughs> yeah. I think they're interesting examples because yeah. they're proper actors, you know, and have been burdened in some way by being handsome leading men, yeah. you know, who the studios have long wanted to make into only handsome leading men. And both of them have uh, really active production companies and try and take parts where they get to play yeah. characters and parts, you know. Um, Assassination of Jesse James, I think Brad's best performance yeah, yeah. ever, you know. I thought he was great in Burn After Reading. I think he's great in Oh, yeah, yeah, he's funny in that. It's not his fault he looks the way he does. You know, yeah. He was great in Inglorious Bastards as well. Yeah, he was, he was. And Fight Club, obviously, but, you know. Okay. But anyway, look, I'm not, I'm not famous. It's not about, you know, do you avoid fame? No, I just, uh, I Even just in do London, my job. You know, Harry Potter being the hit it is, I can't imagine you get on the tube and no one's like, I hey. Don't, I, well, first of all, they're British people, so they would never say anything to you. They wait till <laughs> okay. you've gone by and go, do you know who that, you know, do you know who that guy was? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't look like Lucy's Malfoy uh, at yeah. all. I look more like the other characters. Often I get parents dragging their kids up to me going, look who it is. And the kids are like, and then they go, tell me who you are. And I go, I go, well, I, I'm an actor. I, you know, and they go, but tell me who you play. And I go, well, a uh, long time ago, I played Lucy's Malfoy a few times in the film. And the kids are like, they didn't. <laughs> My God. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm, you know. Uh, I bumble forward uh, acting in things and I tr and then there's long periods of time in between. I, I'm famous when I'm on. So if I'm yeah. on a television series and it's on TV, yeah. then people recognize you. Two weeks yeah. later, uh, I, I'm not famous anymore, which is wow. perfectly fine. Yeah, you know? and that's amazing. And then I'd love to talk to you about, you know, the landscape, you know, now, like what, you know, you said this in the very beginning of part one is like, you know, these things have changed. You just mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. being on the British Film Council that, there's no shortage of people doing movies and you know what what is you think the way in you know because like people now say you know the way of getting an agent getting a manager auditioning getting co-star getting guest star getting reoccurring then getting you know series reg is the dinosaur way what do you think is sure. what do you think is now uh, nobody knows what the fuck is happening right yeah. now but the, you know if you look at where People are watching their entertainment. They're watching on the streamers and they're watching on their phones. And you can make stuff for your phone tomorrow. You know, and you can make, you can make a web series. You can make a podcast. You can make all these things and distribute them and find an audience for free. There are people, there are many, you know, those influencers on different platforms who nobody my age has ever heard of who have yeah. the ear of every young person in the world. Um, so are you nothing... doing films with them? Is that something that's because I know Hollywood's no, no, trying I'm, that. I'm, yeah. no, I'm, yeah. I'm too old to do a bit. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, Tom, Tom Felton and I keep talking about doing a podcast. We might get our shit together if we can never organize it. But, no, um, do it. Uh, 
It would be fun. I think yeah. I've got the microphone. Look. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I might do a podcast or two because it's fun because I'm at home uh, and yeah. I like talking, as you can tell. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the way forward, it, when I'm asked by young people or people to talk to their kids, you know, who want to break in and they think that there is a way, how do I get an agent? How do I get a, and I go, just fucking roll your sleeves up yeah. and get on with it and make yeah. it. It's free. Yeah. You know, Brit, that's what Brit did. That's why Brit Marling was the it girl. She, she couldn't get any work. So yeah. she wrote micro budget movies with her two best friends and they made them and they both got into Sundance wow. you know, at the same time. Suddenly she was this uh, auteur, but she yeah. was someone who was trying to get some work. And that's what Lena Dunham did. You yeah. know, she had stories to tell. Yeah. And um, if you don't think you're great at it, this is the, my uh, pearls of wisdom, my Yoda-like pearls of wisdom, that's all right. You can be shit. It's free. You can yeah. make 50 short films, and if one of them has anything worth saving, that's a they're pretty good odds. Yeah. You know, it, there's no reason nobody starts off being great at anything they turn out being great at. Nobody was born Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and you might find you're good at shooting. You might find you're good at editing. You might find you're good at improvising. You might, you know, there's just, there's no excuse to be a single, have a single string to your bow anymore. Do you think the um, drama school approach is is imperative to learning and the craft and getting better? No, I don't. I think I learned as much before drama school when I was at university doing lots of plays. Um, but it depends what you want to do. I mean, it's. A, I think drama school was great for me because I met my wife. Yeah. And I had three years of getting high in rooms full of people my age. You know, but <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know that the art advanced at all. I think I learned more on the job from people of different ages, actually. Yeah. Um, what you Ideally. get in drama school is the right to fail behind closed doors. You don't get the right to fail professionally that much. This is why the advent of the mobile phone is so fantastic, because then you do, the right to fail has been put in everybody's hands. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, know, I, I don't know what the way in is, but I do know that the way to happiness, if not the way into financial success or you know, uh, professional success, is to take the reins creatively early on yeah. and never let go of them. So that if you do an acting job, it's great because that's, you know, but you're also shooting a web series at the weekend and you walk in the room. If you have an audition, so much more confident. Look, you and I are doing this podcast. You yeah. went for an acting audition today. Yeah. You've got this thing that you do in your life, whether or not it may, it, it pays you loads of money. Or it doesn't. Of, like, I'm so, um, I'm so poor. <laughs> sure, sure. But yeah. unless you have this thing that you get to do, yeah. it means you walk in the room and there's something else to you. You're not waiting for these people to validate yeah, you and, totally. make, and, and switch your life on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's amazing. I, I love that. That's so astute. And talk to me, you know, what, what about theater? Will you ever do it again? Please, man. Uh, you got to come do Broadway or, you know, uh, you know I, I was offered once to go on Broadway. I can't, I don't know, I, should I say what it was? Someone took the part. Uh, um, I'd like, I once again, Broadway. I lived in LA for a few years and I said, you know, I, I don't want to go back to England. Let me go to Broadway. It's close to New York. It's close yeah, to my kids. Yeah, six school six hours. Yeah. And, uh, and they, and I said, but I only want to do a short run. I don't want to go for six months or a year. You don't really earn any money. And I, you know, yeah. Um, so they got in touch. They went, oh, fantastic. There's a Teresa Rebeck play. And oh, oh, she's a phenomenal oh. writer. How fantastic. And it's a six week run only. I'm like, what? I'm in. I don't even need to read what yeah. it to me. And it was to replace Alan Rickman. And Alan Rickman was leaving. Alan Rickman had all the reviews had said, I don't like to play much, but Alan Rickman's a genius. And I went, I'm not stepping in those <laughs> shoes. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? Oh my God. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, the thing about theater for me, uh, I, of course I'd love to do it. And I, I had been to see actually before the pandemic, a couple of people to talk about how much I'd like to do it. And, but, the difficulty running a theatre, if you're one of those people running a theatre, you have to sell tickets. You have yeah. to sell a lot of tickets. Just, you know, they're, they're, 
if you're not subsidized by the government, uh, yeah. then you're commercial theater. You've got to, and to sell tickets, you've mostly got to do revivals of things that people have seen before. Or remember fondly, or popular. you know, that are, you yeah. know, and I don't want to be in some revival to sell tickets. I want to be telling some interesting, provocative story that makes people think about their life. Yeah. Uh, that means new writing. Yeah. And, uh, so I needed to fight. There needed to be a new play, some good new play. For, with a part for some of my age and uh new york theater and, workshop that's that's got your name all over it right well i'm i'm waiting listen i'm available well, I'm, yeah. I, I wouldn't go, i'll, I'll I'm write it for us how about that you, you me right. and tom I, I, I love it. i'm glad now that i didn't yeah. commit to any of the plays because they all got cancelled all my friends were meant to be appearing in the theater you know they wow. have had a terrible year and the theaters are really struggling i don't know that they will yes. all reopen speaking of theater you know the other theater do you think that will be back in our lives again or is it just going to be musicals like it is going to be marvel films in in the other uh, theater always, no i think uh stage uh, on stage people will always uh you know if the big theaters might have to close the buildings might close they might redevelop them for flats i don't know what the hell they're going to do they're yeah. struggling financially people will always put on dramas people will always put on plays um it's actually really expensive to put on a new play in a big purpose-built theater it's easier to put on the bus shelter or yeah. in a, you know a dilapidated gym um I think that young writers that used to write for the theatre now write for television. Yeah, you, they all you do. You write your first thing for television, you know. But uh, but nonetheless, I don't know. You move people in a room in the theatre. There's there's just something about when that works. Yeah. Only when it works. But when it, I feel bad because most people, if they go to the theatre at all, go once or twice a year. Yeah. And they don't enjoy it. They're bored shitless. Yeah. And they think, well, it's, it's me. I don't get it. I, yeah. it's, it's some kind of bitter cultural pill we're all meant to swallow, but I don't yeah. get it. And, you know, it's my fault. I didn't have good enough education. No, you're wrong. That was fucking boring, the thing you saw. Most things are. Yeah. But if you keep trying or if you take recommendations, once in a blue moon, you'll happen across something that makes all the rest of it worthwhile because yeah. it's amazing when it works. You know? Yeah. I just saw Killian Murphy like two years ago in a thing called grief is the thing with feathers. And it was so, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Did you see it in London? No, no, but I know the writer lives around the corner. Edna? Edna, Edna. Yeah, yeah, Edna. yeah. Edna. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love disco pigs. Great writer. Yeah. 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 That's so yeah, beautiful, that's man. A fab cover. But that's exactly so. Ender and Killian have done a few things together. So yeah. if I if I, I would like to be someone's muse, yeah. I'm waiting to be found. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for a writer to use me as their muse. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, I think Killian's doing the show when, during the Peaky Press. I'm going to tell him that you and you guys got to get together and do one. But uh, so he used to live around here. He moved back to Ireland. He used to live around here, and he, he would go running in the morning. And you know, he's a he's a thin boy anyway, and he'd wear yeah. all black, so he'd be like this kind of streak, and he would sprint. And I'd lean out the window and go, for fuck's sake, slow down. <laughs> oh, what's, what's that? Hurry? She'd sprint around the party. She's fit as hell. Oh, man. Great actor as well. Another great yeah, one. Wonderful man. actor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, what do you think about, you know, the British landscape now? Because now, you know, shows like Peaky Blinders are mythologizing, you know, speaking of Killian, the working class. And I feel like a lot of those dramas there are, are, are doing so amazing. And they're coming over to America, you know, a show like Normal People. And is, is it been a yeah, unique... You can't you get to cherry pick our TV output, just like we get to cherry pick yours. Got it. So there was a long period of time when people went, oh my God, America just makes incredible TV shows. You've got The Wire and Breaking Bad. And then yeah. you go, I know, but you'll spend some time in America and watch the other stuff, the filler in between. <laughs> yeah. And similarly, we have some magnificent, uh, every country, actually one of the great things about Netflix is every country has got some magnificent yeah. storytellers. Uh, totally. And there are people more and more telling state of the nation pieces and state of the world pieces. Uh, and being given the, you know, with the creative chops and being given the budgets to do them. Um, 
uh, I, I only bemoan the fact that when our British output, what other people want to see from us often is kind of chocolate box, Victoriana, corset England. Yeah. And it's like America only making Westerns. You know, yeah. uh, That's not who we are or how we are. We're a multicultural nation. Yeah. Made up of immigrants who've come from the ex colonies of the empires that we had, and and you know, that that picture of a you know the cricket ball and warm beer with a, the manor house in the background it is a tiny tiny fraction of what Britain's been for a very very long time. So I hope yeah. that uh, there's multicultural voices get to take snapshots of who we are today and the stuff we're struggling with today and make great drama out of it, and that the bandwidth isn't taken up by more people trying to make Downton Abbey's and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, one one of the questions I have for you is, you know, you talked about, you know, after Peter Pan, there was like this time in your life where you couldn't get arrested. And, you know, I, I'm I'm four years sober. December 3rd is, you know, was my anniversary. Right. And I, I, you know, I'm still that actor that's like one great role away from having had one great role. You know, I'm auditioning, but I haven't had that thing yet. And mm -hmm. how did you keep yourself, you know, in the sober mindset, you know, just especially now in these dark times? How, what what advice do you have for those people struggling with addiction? Oh, well, I mean, if we, if, if we want to move into sobriety talk, we can do that. I don't know if it, how much it plays it's into a, it's a, a big thing. Acting. It's a big proponent of, I mean, we don't have to if you don't want to. But no, it's I'm big, very happy to talk about it. But, it's know, a big part I mean, of, of my reasons, podcast. Sure. One of the reasons that uh, all the 12-step programs are anonymous uh, is that no person should represent themselves as, as, you know, uh, as being a representation of the principles. Uh, of the program because then when they fuck up people go see it doesn't work you know so yeah. i'm no i am no poster boy for anything and i i you know don't work any perfect programming uh, at all but i remember when i was doing peter pan i was i was three years sober or something and uh we moved to la and i didn't get any work at all i mean couldn't, people weren't calling me back and it was just nothing from having been the lead in a gigantic super expensive film to you know leprous yeah. and i found it very very hard and gradually bit by bit i, I was walking on the beach with my daughter every morning um and i was aware that you know, i was going to meetings i was aware that that walking on the beach with my daughter was a wonderful thing and would yeah. be wonderful whether i was working or not and i wasn't yet starving or broke and you know that and even though things looked terrible professionally all i had was that morning on the beach of my daughter i couldn't do it i yeah. couldn't ground myself in the moment i couldn't enjoy anything they got to the point where from eight o'clock in the morning when i was aware that my agents would have been in the office i was you know just thinking about them sitting there not calling yeah uh, is anybody working for me is anyone trying to get me a job what am i doing in los angeles thousands of miles from home where my rest of my family are we're spending money like i'm some su successful actor and I'm, I'm not making a penny and it's yeah. just you know i i peaked i had this i'm like a one-hit band you know i had a movie it flopped and um and i just was the, the voices in my head filled up these beautiful days on a beach with my kid and you know where i could because some voice in my head was going look one day you'll be working again you'll look back and think you fucking idiot yeah. you're on a beach with your daughter you didn't even enjoy it yeah why couldn't you enjoy it but i couldn't be present and then somebody called me and said hey i saw you talking in a meeting and i need a sponsor i need someone to help me and i went dude you have so called the wrong person <laughs> <laughs> I am not in yeah. any position to be stable for anybody. I'm not in a very good way. My mental health is very shaky. I'm feeling odd. He said, no, I look, you're, I'm, I'm English. You're English. I'm like days away from dying. I'm a crack addict. I've got to, I've got to talk to someone, you know, just my life's falling apart. And I went, uh, look, maybe I can find someone for you. And I met him for a cup of coffee. And then I took him to a meeting every day and he saved my life. Yeah. 
Yeah. You saved my life because I had someone to think about and someone to help. And that's how the 12-step program works. It's not really about yourself at all. I was able to help somebody else and everything else in my life suddenly took on a different perspective and proportion. And yeah. I began to be present. It didn't solve the problems, the work problems. So just that thing, which is not exclusive to any 12-step program, which is the Serenity Prayer, which has been around for, you know, for centuries, you know, change the things you can change and accept the things you can't. And I was able to go, today I'm on the beach. Yeah. with my beautiful daughter and we go and we're going to go swimming out in the kayak or, you know, today I'm going to eat with my wife and I was able to be present because somebody else needed my help. Yeah. And that, that's how, that's how those programs work. Yeah. You know? it's, it's someone once in the room told me to tap your shoulder when you're panicking because you're here, you're now, you know, you're in the present yeah, yeah. and you're not, you're not the future. You're not in the past. So worry about right now. And it, it, sure. I, I hit my bottom in London and I got sober in London. So that's why, you know, it's, it, it, this this program saved my life, you know, and I, it's it's been tough during this time. But it's know. a program of help. It's a pro I mean, it's a you know, addicts, alcoholics. It's you know, generalization. I'm sure if I if I could quote the big book better, I would, uh, but I can't quote it at all. Uh, but we're very self centered and we're yeah. very selfish and we're very childish. And and, uh, and the thing that helps us not obsess about ourselves all the time and think about ourselves is helping other people, being yeah. of service. Not just to people who are uh, addicts or alcoholics, but to anybody, just being of service, you know. And um, so I'm lucky because I have a bit of a profile as an actor that I'm asked to get involved in lots and lots of different charity things. And yeah. I do uh, tons of it. And, and it's because I'm nice. It's because I'm a selfish fuckhead, you know. And so <laughs> left to my own devices, yeah. I will be entirely self-centered, but I'm forced and given an easy opportunity to be of service a lot. Um, I miss the chances of, you know, when I get to be face to face with the people who are being helped, I'm helping to raise money now or doing other things often, but, um, being as knowing that I'm being of service or trying to be of service is something I grew up seeing. My mother was uh, a crazy disturbed addict in a way, uh, uh, you know, she had a food problem who, um, who never got help. And so was damaged and damaged people around yeah. her. But one thing she just knew instinctively as a human being is she had to help other people. Yeah. And she never sorted herself out, but she was, she ran charity after charity after charity until they would eventually throw her out because she was so difficult or whatever. But she <laughs> yeah. started charities, so she ran charities, though. you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, ask me, how do I stay sane in these times? Uh, I don't know that I am staying sane in these times, but the things that help are being of service, you know, yeah. in, in whatever way I can. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that and opening up. I, I apologize if that was intrusive. but um, I'm happy to talk. There's a lot of people stuck in the houses, drinking, taking drugs, yeah. overeating, using, I don't know, gambling, porn, whatever they're doing, and, and, and not able to control it. It's so many sober friends I, I came up with. I've relapsed, and I, I feel... I feel powerless that I can't do more for them because I can't go be with them right now. And we can't be in those rooms. And, sure. you know, the, the Zoom thing is great, but it's it's a little bit different. And, Not you know, the same. yeah, yeah. Just like how we were talking about theater and that experience together. You know, but I tell you, my favorite things to do is, and I'm not, I've not done it forever. Is someone goes, and my friend's got to tell my friend, my kid, my husband, why would have got a terrible drink or drug problem? And you go, can I have a chat with them? And they go, I don't think they're going to talk to you. They, they won't talk to you. And, and you force the situation. And uh, you go there and you go, and they go, look, and you go, shut up. They go, I go, I don't want to hear a fucking word you've got to say and tell you my story. Oh, I thought I yeah. thought you were gonna no, no fuck I don't care if you know what the fuck do you know about anything? I'm gonna tell you what happened to me and then I'm gonna leave and if you have any interest you can call me. Yeah. It's just a you know. <laughs> That's so beautiful. I love that, man. That's awesome. Well, 
you know, what's, you know, kind of expounding on that? What's, what's keeping you inspired right now outside of, you know, the sobriety, you know, what, what's, what's booing Jason, you know, it's, it's been so tough. I don't you know, know that anything is, I'm not yeah. doing very well. I'm yeah. not handling it very well. I've got a twice a week AA zoom meeting with some friends or, or that I like uh, talking to them and I, they don't like if I moan about the same things week after week. So I feel like I better do something about them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feel like I can, I'm accountable to them. Um, I've got teenage kids in the house, so I got to keep my spirits up, but I'm not, I, I, addicts and alcoholics are, are negative people. We tend oh, towards the negative for sure. So that we're catastrophizers. I've always been that way. So I can look at headlines and go, this pandemic's never ending. There'll be mobs roaming the streets, you know, eating each other. Civil war is coming. Within you weeks, know. you know, look at the invasion of the capital, you know, yeah. fascism is on the rise, yeah. uh, everywhere all over the world. And I can be, I can be living the horror of starving on the street in a fascist state when it hasn't actually happened yet <laughs> today. Yeah. Today I'm going downstairs and my wife's cooking Korean food. Oh, that's nice. What's that's what's <laughs> actually happened today. Yeah. So I need to try and find ways to stay in the day to make practical moves towards what I can control and try not to fill my head with the things that I can't. I've been, uh, so what's keeping me, uh, alive, you know, I'm going off to do this job that I don't, really want to be in a position of uh vulnerability east coast of COVID. canada or west coast uh, toronto toronto uh, oh, nice great. people if they yeah. ever see this it's not because i don't want to go and work with them it's just yeah. i'm anxious about it uh but at the same time as dreading it i've got that i've got a thing on the landscape i feel bad yeah. for people who are just looking out at an amorphous mass of you know uh what seem like darker and darker clouds um so that and then you know some other projects that are other people are developing supposedly and may happen and we talk to each other and i don't know if any of us really believe they're going to happen but we talk to each other with increasingly you know shrill hysterical yeah. optimism and uh, maybe something will come to pass yeah. and i don't know I'm, I'm blundering forward day to day i don't have any answer i tell you i've not been productive you know i don't know about you i speak to people who during pod during lockdown they're like well, I've done a podcast, right? Yeah. You know, I brushed up. It's been so long since I played the saxophone. And like, you know, I speak Bulgarian now. Like, well, I haven't fucking done anything. <laughs> nothing. Uh, yeah. nothing useful. Or, I haven't even tidied up. And um, uh, and a year's gone by. And listen, I remember the days when I was using drugs a lot. And, you know, a day would go, I'd wake up. And before I knew it, it was dark again. And that was great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's not that different now. Yeah. I don't do that much during the days right now. Yeah, me um, either. But it's not terrible either. Yeah. You know, if I can find one moment where we're tidying up to music and dancing or... Or having Korean you know, food. <laughs> yeah, I sit yeah. with my kids and I watch yeah. Sex in the City or having Korean food, trying to find the pleasures in, in, what, in the simple day-to-day -day and, and not be intimidated by yeah. numbers of my friends who seem to have turned into polymath productive geniuses. <laughs> Jason Isaacs, man, you are one of the greatest in the world. You've been a real hero of mine. And, and, and really, you opening up to me and sharing all this with me is... It's fulfilled me and, and, and inspired me and, and anchored me and buoyed me in ways that, you know, this is this is all I have during this pandemic. You know, it's I get occasional auditions, but it's really this this interaction that keeps me sane. And for you opening up and, right. and giving back and coming on the show, it, I owe well, you so thing, much. So I used to go, as it used to a year ago previously, to conventions quite a lot. Um, at first, I was very reluctant. Tom Felton said, "You can't really like it." Yeah, and then he's right. I did like it. I did like it because I met millions of people. You know, I got paid a little bit of money to, you know, travel. is it an intense experience with people that passionate? At it's those, really intense. It's really yeah. intense. But one of the reasons it's intense is, is the reason I bring it up is that thousands of people would line up and they come to the table and they, you know, uh, not everybody, but numbers of people would come and they would 
to my mind, be giving me very unjustified elevated status. They come up and they're shaking or they're crying because it's Harry Potter or because of whatever, you know, whatever thing I've yeah. been in that, that affect them powerfully and, and they have pictures and they get overwhelmed. And, and I felt my job in the minute I had with them, and I've had, you know, two hours ago, is to make them realize I'm just some other fucking idiot who doesn't take the bins out. You know, I'm just yeah. some guy who should floss more. And, and uh, I do this job where I get to pretend to be people. I've done it occasionally well in great pieces and sometimes mediocrely. And, and nobody in, on the planet deserves to take up any more space than you do or is any more special than you are. Yeah. You know, and that, that, you know, certainly not in the acting world. Maybe the scientists who invented the vaccine or Neil Armstrong or someone, but I'm just some other twat who's further down the road than you. I think we all need that practice in humility, especially a, a lot of American actors I see, you know, have this delusional attitude, which I guess can work. But, you know, that's what I try to practice in not only my sob sobriety, but also in this podcast is just humility and getting to the root sure. of what we love to do and what keeps us inspired and these narratives that move us and allow us to exist and feel joy with our lives you know or you yeah. know, feel sad or make us think if not yeah. joy yeah sometimes my kids wanted to watch happy things and i'm like you know sometimes you can watch something that isn't happy but you still feel fulfilled or satisfied you've been on an emotional journey it's still a worthwhile enterprise to watch films that don't make you laugh you yeah know? and uh, it's tough to persuade them at the moment yeah well you know when that toronto project wraps i'd love to have you come back on and and do this again and I really, you know, man, you and Tom I have an endless capacity to find myself interesting. So to be careful what you wish for. I'll I, I, dude, I could have you on anytime. And honestly, I'd, I'd love to grab coffee in person when the world allows that oh, kind of reality yeah, again. Me you too. know, yeah. And maybe well, we'll get yourself cast in the show. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself cast so I can get a little bit of momentum. Then I'm going to write a play for you, Britt Marley Good. style. Thank you. And then you're going to play the lead and uh, we're going to take over and we'll see you at the Tonys in 2025. It's, it sounds very good. <laughs> Sounds Jason good. Isaacs, I love you, brother. All right, Thank Ryan. you. All right. It was great to talk to you. It's lovely to see you again. Yeah, and yeah. I hope you get the part. Thank you. And let's do this again, please. This really right. meant so I'm much. I'm up to for me. it. All right. Love I'm you, brother. Lots of love. Bye. All right. Peace. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.